In today's episode of the Positive Worth Podcast, I continue my Interesting People I Know series with entrepreneurs Tosh Jones and Trevor Chin. Friends since college, Tosh and Trevor have embarked on many adventures, both separately and together. Listen in to hear how they recently invested over $200,000. I'm your host, James Oliver, and you've just joined me on my journey of holistic learning, where I talk to people about the five F's in their life, field, family, finance, fitness, and faith. Like, share, and subscribe to help the algorithm. And you can also check out our Patreon page by searching Positive Worth. I am known as Trevor Chin, and I own an auto shop. Uh, I'm Tosh Jones. Uh, I'm a full-time mechanical engineer, um, primarily work in project engineering. And then uh, on the side, uh, we have a business, which is TNT Machine Works, where we uh, you know, utilize CNC machines to make parts. We all met around college time frame, correct? You guys didn't know each other before college either? No. Yeah. So between machine classes, engineering classes, which we dropped out of or whatever it was, <laughs> we all <laughs> failed out of. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I wasn't here to talk about my failing, but uh, yes, failed out of. <clears throat> I went back and passed that class later, but changed majors all the same. <laughs> um but so starting off with you, Tosh, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about TNT Machine Works and Trevor grabbed the mic at any point to interject. But uh, tell us a little bit about what TNT Machine Works is. Yeah, so um, TNT Machine Works really came around uh, just as a culmination of, you know, I started my manufacturing journey at, at the university. Mm -hmm. um, I, like, I, I think you might have been a TA at the time, mm -hmm. or at least you frequented the shop. Yeah. Um, and then as I, as I got into it, you know, I just kind of fell in love with it and took more and more and more. So lathe mill, CNC, surface grinding, all that kind of stuff. And then as I kind of got to a certain point, I was able to TA and teach the classes. Um, and then that's right around that time is really where I kind of got, uh, involved with Trevor and we just kind of found random projects to do all the time, uh, whether it's helping, um, uh, students make their parts for, uh, senior projects and just other stuff that they kind of wanted to make. Mm -hmm. We were kind of an outlet for uh, a few of those sorts of people. And then uh, probably the first major project that we really took on together is our, our journey with apple cider, uh, making some automated equipment there and every year just kind of growing and growing. And, yeah, you know, I once I graduated, he was still here in California, or sorry, Walla Walla. <laughs> I moved to California and, uh, you know, we still did projects remotely, you know, half that grinder set up, I shipped from California in a suitcase, you know. And real quick, just like in three sentences, explain the grinder setup, because I don't think people have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, and, so, and hold the mic just a little bit closer. Okay. So... Uh, in cider processing, um, the first thing you, the second thing you have to do after you wash the apples is you have to grind them down to a mash size. Once it's mashed, then you can squeeze it in a variety of different ways to get your juice. So the grinder itself uh, is made up of inch thick, you know, HDPE. It's you know super uh, hygienic. You know, it's what they use cutting board materials with. Mm. Uh, we use it in the food industry a lot, um, and then we basically stack a whole bunch of stainless steel saw blades together um, to create. <coughs> A 80, yeah, 80, 80 saw blades together to kind of create a, uh, uh, the, 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 not even, I can't really even say it's a Frankenstein, you know, grinder, <laughs> but you can, you can definitely dump in five gallons of apples at a time and it, it spits them out ground. Yeah. yeah. See, I, just the visual of that. I mean, someone, you say homemade grinder or something and 
going back to the original days of me hearing about the apple cider, it was literally just a um, uh, disposal. Yeah, just a garbage yeah, disposal. Just a stainless steel garbage disposal that you had to cut the apples or the tip of your finger and <laughs> make apple cider. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you and started off with literally a garbage disposal that was clean. Correct. And yeah, new. Brand, brand new, stainless steel, you know. But yeah, but still that, that mental image of 50 saw blades or 80 saw blades side by side. I got to hold that thing once. It was so unbelievably heavy. It, it, it weighs a fair chunk and it, it does emasculate the apples quite nicely. Yeah. And so when you guys are talking about apple cider, though, you know, what was your biggest year of cider production as far as gallons? The last time we ran, um, we did 700, about 700 gallons, and we started at maybe 8 a.m. and we were cleaned up by three. Um, I mean, put that in perspective, right? (laughs) When we first started, we'd go out in the field and we'd go pick the apples in the morning. You know, we'd be out there at seven o'clock and we would finish at midnight and we'd maybe get 90 gallons, you know, and now we're processing, we're able to process more than a hundred gallons an hour. Good grief. When we have enough people, you know, things are running smoothly. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to look back in time and see if I can find a picture because again, the visual of this whole process is incredible. Um, So the cider and now... I want to talk a little bit going back to to TNT Machine Works and look specifically at some details. So I I took a couple videos earlier just to show the size of the machine and some of the back and forth that the two of you are doing. So I'll overlap those at this point, but you're not talking like a homemade printer, I'm not homemade, but you're not talking like a Canon printer or one of those homemade 3D printers that sits on a desk. I mean, the the thing that's sitting right over there is a monster. It's huge. What did that machine cost? Um, the machine raw cost before you option is around eighty-eight thousand. Um, by the time we optioned it out with uh, the faster spindle and probe and all the other stuff that we wanted on fourth axis, we came in right around one hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars. Okay. And then from there, then you got shipping and uh, rigging. You know, those are two separate things that, you know, cost another six to seven thousand dollars a piece. And Trevor, what were you telling me about just the, the forklift? <laughs> I, mean. I, I think it was roughly uh, six or seven thousand dollars to move the thing about a hundred and thirty feet. On flat for, concrete. Uh, yeah, on, fl- on asphalt and flat concrete. And they take it off the truck, set it down, unbox it a little bit, drive it and set it over here just behind the cameras. And it's a about six or seven thousand dollars to pay a company to come and do that for you and when you first told me about this trevor um i hadn't been talking to tosh about it but you two were inspired by another guy here in town um because you're talking a 200 plus thousand dollar investment at this point uh, which i mean to me is like my heart starts beating a little bit faster thinking about (laughs) spending those kinds of dollars what on earth made you think that that was going to be a good idea that this has been 10 years in the making, starting with car parts, random little things, helping other students, maybe more than 10 years. Um, Apple cider was definitely a big thing because there's been four or five renditions of each item that we have built. And I mean, let's be fair. We like to bite off more than we can chew. We, we like to... Or, or uh, squeeze uh, more than you can drink. Right. Or, you know... Uh, learn how to swim by way of not drowning and so we 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 like to jump in the deep end and 
honestly, we, we do pretty good work figuring out how to swim by throwing ourselves at things that are probably outside our grasp, including the learning curve with this machine. Tosh uh, has built several and is working on another CNC in his house, in his garage. Uh, we cut guitar bodies, like uh, I think the last summer he worked at camp, we put his CNC in my garage and I cut guitar bodies for a electric guitar startup called Wall Wall Guitar Company. That was not the first thing we did together by any stretch, but that was the first like CNC thing we did together. And then when he had moved back, we started, um, there's a guy in town that makes uh, these wine crates and stuff for, you know, grocery stores nationwide. And he has a CNC and he didn't know how to program it. And I happened to be working next door and I was like, well, I, I think I know a guy. And then we do the back and forth and much like here where he's running the computer and I run the machine. That's kind of how that kept going. And mm -hmm. while I may be learning the computer and he can definitely operate the machine, like that, that is the more natural dynamic currently. And that's been years in the making. Yeah. It's, it's not an overnight thing, but if we like to bite off more than we can chew, like we can only stare at it for so long before it, you're going to click the order button and it's going to show up. <laughs> so, so Trevor, when you guys started on this journey, um, you were not married. And so you could kind of make the decision at that point. Uh, Tosh, you were married, and so you just walked in one day and said, sweetie, I'm going to drop $100,000 with a buddy of mine on a, a big metal box. Uh, how'd that conversation actually go? Um, uh, I was actually floored at her response. Um, we had walked through a couple guys. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional just because, like, this is what I love to do, you know, and, <clears throat> and my wife has supported me through all of this and she is uh you know when i came to her and was like hey i think there's an opportunity here she's like go for it 100 percent, do it you know there was there was i mean she's known what i've been passionate about for 15 years you know ever since i took the first lathe class and i fell in love with machining she's she wasn't involved in my life at that time but you know like finally getting to the point where like there was a real opportunity you know to to do something that you love you know and i didn't really want to do it by myself you know and you know like the times when he's not here and you're just working by yourself you're just grinding you're like this is still fun but man it is it is much better to do this stuff and it's so much funner to do it with somebody here you know it all goes faster it's you know everything else but i mean uh, yeah, the conversation with the wife went really, really well. And I, it's been great. Now, Trevor, back to you on this, because we're kind of talking about how family has impacted this decision. Um, we can send Tasha get some tissues there. <laughs> um, did you, was there any level of like thinking about family or how did family impact your decisions over the years? Also, including leading up to this TNT machine works idea, um, as you thought about being an entrepreneur versus just working for someone? So I was raised by somebody that worked multiple jobs. And for most of my childhood, she sold a uh, home, 
I, I don't know, anyway, party light candles from the house to people mm-hmm. via shows in their home back when that was a thing. Back really before the internet took off and you could go to somebody's home and order and it was customary to wait a few days and not order it on Prime and curse when it says it'll show up in two days and it doesn't get here for a week and you're like, oh, this customer service is terrible. You know, <laughs> but back in the day when you'd order out of a catalog and you'd wait and I grew up with someone that worked for themselves. To, to be fair, looking back now, I grew up with someone that I know worked from about 4 a.m., to midnight for most of my childhood. Wow. Did I realize that then? No. Did she take time in the evenings to spend time with me and do that? Yeah. Did I, Do I feel like I was neglected? No, but she worked for herself 100%. That's, that's how we, I mean, we could talk about that's how we have the opportunity sitting before us for the auto shop and that, at least from my end, like, you know, our, our parents help us get somewhat where we are sometimes. And I, I don't know, working for someone else has always been something I did. She always told me I'd never be happy unless I worked for myself. <laughs> but well, maybe happy is the wrong word. I'd never be challenged mm-hmm. unless I worked for myself because I'm too good at fitting into the role and killing that role and then getting bored with that role because I don't have to think about that role. That role is what that role is. And there's no real big curve balls thrown at you on the daily where you're just taking care of stuff and, you know, putting out fires that people never see, taking care of, in the auto world, taking care of customers that are mad because something happened, be it the shop's fault or not the shop's fault. Like, but both of them happen. I'm not here to tell you whether or not it did. You know, within reason, I will take care of it. You know, see, so in in talking about family, um, something that you did skim over kind of briefly, but has been a reality for the for almost you know fifteen years that I've known you, um, is that you were raised by a single mom, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't just that your mom and your dad were working and all these things. It was truly um, when you're talking about your mom from the day that I met her she was the sole provider in your household and she was the reason, um, and all these things. And, um, I don't want to skim over the, the, the fact that she's no longer here either, but really played a significant role in all of our lives over the years that we've known each other. Um, and so when you're, we've talked about this several times on this recent trip, but a lot of the opportunities that you have right now, um, I would very much say are self-made and yet are very much impacted by, um, you know, who your, who your mother was and what she, what kind of legacy she left because of her mm-hmm. hard work. I mean, it, it is fair to say that at this point in my life, I would not be able to make the decisions I have made had people not helped me. And to be fair, the guy that is no longer the R and R and T did help. He helped quite a bit. He helped me take the leap. Sure. He walked away and said, this isn't for me, which is fine. Like that's, that's your prerogative at any any point. If this joker walks away and goes, I'm not making machine parts anymore. In, in five to 10 years, maybe I'll be like, all right, I got this. We'll keep going. But at this point I'd be like, well, I guess we're selling this sucker. Um, cause I, I don't have the expertise to do this. Doing automotive is what I've done for 
13, 14 years now. Like it's, it's what I know. It's what I'm comfortable in. It's the customer service part is just a, I, I didn't have to deal with customers and now, now I do. And so we figure out that hurdle and we, we keep going. Polishing the rough edges. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so the family portion alone is really intriguing to me, but um, we've started to touch on, and I want to move to the next F in the conversation, which is finance. And so, you know, real quick, because you're the, the sole person in the auto shop out of the two of you, um, financially, what was your thought process about, or what, how do I ask this better, what in the realm of finances went into your thinking about going out on your own and starting up your own shop? Because I, I imagine there's more than a little bit of overhead since you own everything in view. Um, to be fair, I don't own everything in view. You know, employees own their own tools, but the rest okay. of it is owned by the shop. There's like two boxes that'll be in the camera angle, and but then the lifts and the parts bins. And <laughs> anyway, that's fair. Um, so there is quite a bit of overhead in a shop. I have honestly incurred quite a bit more because I have a standard of practice that does not allow you to cut corners. You know, it requires a on-car brake lathe, which is no small feat. No, I didn't buy the cheapest one. But when it's 20 grand for an on-car brake lathe, like, that's just to turn your brakes. We get to charge $36 per axle for that. Mm -hmm. It's not a moneymaker. It's yeah. a customer service item. And I have a stiff, we will provide the best service that I know how at the time we service your car, even though I think auto repair should still be called a practice, much like doctors who can charge you money and not fix anything. <laughs> um, like I will do my best to fix your car in the fastest time possible with the best repair provided you are willing to pay the money. And if you're not willing to pay the money, I will try to meet you in the middle wherever you want to go with what you're willing to spend for the best repair. Yes, there are customers that I tell, sorry, I, I'm not going to do that to your car mm -hmm. because we just can't let that out the door. At the end of the day, I have to give a two-year, 24,000-mile warranty. But the overhead in the shop from tooling alone is significant, um, especially in the startup phase because I... I'm not somebody that slows down real well. And so we probably have in the first three years most of the tooling that we need for the foreseeable future. The the large tooling items have begun to tail. It is it is less so an, an overhead item, but it is a large overhead item still and will be for a while. You mentioned a $20,000 lathe. If you had to take a stab at what your physical assets are... Are at this point, I mean, what would be a dollar figure in here? Not a clue. <laughs> like, like, like I could physically, you know, resale value or what I've paid are two very separate things. Sure. Um, what, what I've incurred in here in, you know, tooling. I mean, we can run through stuff and I can tell you what the prices were for them, mm -hmm. but between four and five hundred thousand isn't that hard to get to. Yeah, okay. I think that's part of what what a lot of people don't understand about things like an auto shop is the unbelievable investment in equipment and the incredibly high overhead that exists here. I mean, I owe a lot to you over the last fifteen years of really 
learning why a shop rate that's $150 an hour can get you to a point where you can barely make ends meet if you're not getting the right jobs coming through the door. And it gave me a different appreciation for why companies charge um, what they charge. You know, I, it's not my place to talk about this, but you showed me your books earlier. And for the incredible amount of income that you've had for this year, there's, there's nothing left. No, um, the, 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 that's the way it goes. Uh, what I was trained since I started doing this is an auto shop is honestly lucky to make 5 to 10%. If you do not need any tooling, if you do not have a lot of warranties or you somehow have a parts company, which if you do, let me know, that, that pays you well when you have to fix a part that failed for them, legitimately failed for them, because I know there's plenty of people who have failed and... Then they try to make yeah, somebody yeah. pay for it um, without just getting a replacement part or, you know, a, a parts company that actually takes care of you would be phenomenal. But, um, you know, we charge $150 an hour. If I have a warranty and I want to go through the multiple hours of headache to get Napa to warranty that, which is one of our smallest parts suppliers, I will get reimbursed at $50 a book hour. If I do that repair, and sure, they'll take care of the parts. My biggest parts supplier, um, other than the fact that my salesman is phenomenal and he will find ways to cut costs on parts, you know, going down the road for us for a while to try and cover some of that labor, and I don't ask for anything that's usually under two hours. We just take care of it in-house. But when a 10- or 11-hour job fails due to a part, I I need some help. And... Part warranty just keeps going up. And I, I'm not meaning like technician installed it wrong warranty. That happens too. I mean, strictly like you install the part and the first time you fire it up, it's junk. Hmm. It's ridiculously high. I mean, I'm not going to say it's 30%, but 10% is not that hard. Yeah. I call and I ask what warranty numbers are on parts. And it's, you know, I try to buy the stuff that's under 5%, but that's getting harder and harder to find parts that have a warranty rate of under 5%. So when we're when we're looking at the way that thinking about finances has impacted your auto part of your entrepreneurial journey, um, I don't think that you were a stranger to any of, really any of this, because we'd had similar conversations before. You'd helped run shops before. Um, and, and what I'm partially taking away from you is like in spite of some of this headache that ability to work for yourself to control your hours to control your environment um have driven you to the point of saying i'm willing to take on some of the headache so that i can well for example have air conditioning in my shop yeah air air conditioning was a big thing uh there's not a lot of auto shops in this town that have air conditioning and we're somewhere that does hit a 115 degrees in the summer the auto shop that i came from you were lucky to keep it 10 degrees under ambient. Yeah, and I probably, I, won't, I probably won't post this till fall, but just yeah, so people realize it yeah. is summer and I'm wearing a jacket inside because I got cold. You guys are running around working, but it's, I got cold. It's 74 in here. It's not that cold. <laughs> um, All right, but, I'm a wimp. I'm fine with that. <laughs> you, you, were, you, 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 you were in a hot climate for quite a while. Yes. And you're, you're getting used to it again. But, um, and, but the, the AC to me is important not... Not just because I don't like being hot. I mean, we can talk about that, but that's that's not it. Like, my temper flares when I'm hot. Y- your technician's tempers flare when they're hot. 
Parts break because you're mad. You're hot. You don't want to work. I mean, you, you go out on the hottest day. You wait till you're drenched in sweat. You're trying to look at something. The sweat's running in your eye. And you can't see what you're trying to do. Or you can't touch it because sweat's running down your hands. Like, And nobody wants to work on a boiling hot car that you bring in that's at 115 degrees. So yeah. we can keep the temp down in here helps everybody be cooler in more ways than one and that's the biggest thing not so much the body temp but keeping cooler heads everybody gets along better everything happens better um that that's the biggest thing for me is you know also with the cnc now we can't have a large temperature variation because that actually yeah. does affect like other things okay but that that was you know not the plan when we started here sure. So good segue. So so we've talked a fair bit about the auto shop. Now getting back to some questions for both of you on finance. Um, when you looked at CNC, uh, you talked to me a bit about what you expected as far as an ROI with this thing. So you spent two hundred thousand dollars. When do you expect that two hundred thousand dollar investment to have paid for itself to the point where you might start pulling some kind of an income off of it? I mean, did it happen in one month or? Next week? No. Um, <laughs> uh, the machine will be paid for come hell or high water in three years. It doesn't matter. So, yeah. And so realistically, a time frame um, for not only paying off the machines, but then actually starting to churn something you feel like you can take home. I, I mean, the, the other thing that should be understood is we've wanted one of these because we make lots of parts for our things be it apple cider car parts when back when i used to put those together like r randomness for other people other things like we've wanted one of these for a long time if we can make it pay for itself and we never make a dime we'll be happy is that the goal no not not in the slightest mm. the goal is to make that thing make money but at the end of the day like our goal is for it to not cost us any money between now and when it's paid off mm -hmm. our goal clearly by the way we reinvest money in it because sure we talk about two hundred thousand dollars to get that machine in here optioned out set up that kind of thing that doesn't include the tooling the fixture tables the vices which is another 30 40 like, it's another chunk of change to, to, to do the rest of this, the stuff that's over there, not including that what should be a mechanics toolbox but is a CNC toolbox. <laughs> um, but but there's, a, there's another chunk of change over there, and there's $10,000 in material sitting over there due to the style of work mm -hmm. that we do, where we have to have material on hand or we can't compete fiscally when we call the local supplier that will cut us a piece and send it to us for four to eight times the money of what we have sitting over there. So Tosh, um, I've heard Trevor's side of this. I mean, what's what's your take on the financial aspect of the machine and, and your intentions with the business? Well, we both have full-time careers, right? He is a mechanic, R&T Auto Works by trade, and I am a mechanical engineer by trade. That is what I do for 40 hours a week. So when we get done with our day jobs, we come here and then we machine. You know, so first and foremost, you know, we want that machine to pay for itself just because we have so many things that we want to, we want to make randomly. It doesn't mean we're here every day making them, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, if we have an idea, we can just do it. We're not waiting on anybody. You know, that's, that's 
like for our creative minds, you know, and to keep us, you know, uh, stimulated, that's, that's really, that's, that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, we would really love for this thing to be a full-time career, I think for both of us. Um, and you know, when even just looking in, I mean, we've had this for, um, about nine months now, the first three months of that, we really didn't do too much. Like we were trying to figure out how to get into the game and really mm-hmm. understanding the machine. Um, part of our loan was that we had 90 days of no payments. Um, and so that kind of really allowed us like 90 days to really figure it out before we were really like, okay, we got to, we got to start pumping out the parts. Was that 90 days once it hit the floor or 90 days from time of order? Once the machine hits the floor, powered on and it's fully turned over to us. So it, it, oh. it, yeah, once it sat here, it wasn't just that it was delivered. It was that the tech had to come and fully run through it, jog through it, set it up, make sure that it's, it's good to go. And it's, it's fully released to us. That's cool. I mean, to be fair, it shows up, and the tool carousel and the spindle and stuff. There's stuff laying inside the machine. The control panels inside the machine. Like you, you, it's not ready to go. It shows up, and they spend two days putting it together. Sure, but when I order Legos, I pay for it before it gets delivered to me, even if I don't assemble it. I, I mean, different customer base. <laughs> this is really? this, this is a high price tag for a lot of sheet metal and a little bit of solid metal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's still a there's still a down payment that needs to get made um one of the other things that really allowed us to even do this was um you know i'd moved we had moved here a couple years ago and then the market just went nuts and so we actually did a heloc on the house and so instead of moving you know we ended up with a bigger uh bigger cash flow that we can kind of pull from and so Mm -hmm. that's where we really pulled the first chunk of change in order to in order to get this thing um here and so outside of just the machine payment right we also have we both have some personal heloc stuff um to, to get there so yeah. as far as financially <laughs> the goal is to pay for that thing first um, and then ideally if we can be on the similar trajectory that we've been on for the last six months um, uh, like we've between quarter one and quarter two this year we've doubled our sales in quarter two cool and, and and our workflow and and stuff is just kind of kind of looking and trending in that direction and so we're really hoping to by the end of this year and especially by the time we get into year the end of year two to, to really see some of those like production jobs that are really starting to allow us to you know make headway either on that payment or our own personal um, loads. Ideally, yeah. three years, zero. Yeah. And, and and to be fair, we we know a few people with these style of machines, and the the common theme is somewhere around two years of owning it, you will stumble into a job that is fairly lucrative as long as you are a competent operator and you build nice parts the jobs are out there you have to be willing to hold the headache and eventually you know i'm it's not a guarantee but there's a good chance something's going to come the the guys that we that finally made us take the plunge and we're like yeah you can do it in this town and you know do this kind of thing and we're doing it a little differently than they did when they got into it but they're like, you can do it, and we'll push you work when we have it. Now, they're not going to send us their regular clients. You know, one of them has 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 machines by himself. He's one dude, and he runs all those machines, and the other guy has one machine, and he kind of does one thing for the most part and makes enough money to do what he wants to do and goes home at the end, you know. What is what does that mean? So like if I'm the guy with the eleven machines 
versus the F one machine, what's the difference in in like net profits? I, I don't have a solid answer, but I would guess it's pretty substantial. Okay. I mean, the guy with the 11 machines is, A, not running cheap equipment. The guy with the one machine, mind you, probably paid significantly less than we did, only because of two years less of inflation, especially at a high inflation point. Mm. And also, his machine is slightly smaller, didn't come with some of the options we bought, but also... Like that—that's not really the the point. Like he he got it at a tw time that we would have paid sixty thousand dollars less for our machine. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, part of it is just growth, right? Where do you want to go personally, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, if you really challenge yourself and you really push yourself, like stuff is out there, you know. Um, and the guy that has eleven machines, like he started with one. And then he had another job and then he had another job and then he had another job. And some of these things, you know, when you start adding the quantity up, like it keeps your machine busy for weeks or months or it's that's all it runs in the machine, mm -hmm. you know. And so when you get to that kind of stuff, it's just a machine that makes money on the floor. I mean, yeah, yeah you got to program it and you got to do some of this other stuff. Right. But like it allows you to be a one man shop when you can do that kind of stuff. And that's yeah. from what I understand, that's the kind of work that he does. He doesn't do the onesie twosie work like we do right yeah. now. OK, like we're we're pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, because I watched you guys doing the onesie twosie work this evening and it was, you know, one of you was constantly doing something every couple of minutes. There was no there wouldn't have been time to do the jobs you did tonight on 11 machines one of them would have constantly been sitting still waiting for you. Um, but the mass production certainly makes a lot of, a lot of sense. But what would you rather have? Would you rather make a hundred dollars an hour and you have to stand there and maintain it? Or would you rather turn the machine free and have it make you 25 every hour of every day? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I mean, that's, that's not a good example monetarily, it's probably actually less than that for it to run continuously. Sure. But if you have, it's passive income at that point. Yeah. Which is king to some extent. So one of the other, one of the other F's now uh, for our final one of fitness is faith. I'm really curious about how entrepreneurs and their journeys and different people in their journeys have been impacted by faith, whether that's a belief in God, whether that's from a specific religion or something handed down to them from their families. Um, and I'm not here expecting any kind of answer. It may be a, a zero level um, impact. It may be everything to, to where you've landed. And so I'm just curious to what extent faith um, has played a role in, in what you've decided to do. I can give you a very I'm going to call it a vague answer because I am not in the same faith place I was even when I was in college, which is not the same place I was in high school. Um, being raised Seventh-day Adventist by my mother and my grandparents, I have a very strong faith. Maybe I don't carry all of the traditional SDA values, uh, shuns, uh, taboos that that my grandparents carried I don't believe in a lot of that stuff do I believe in the general principles of what the Christian religion within SDA provides yes do I believe that one of the biggest things is you have to live by more or less the golden rule 
Like you can't treat customers like junk in a business and expect them to come back. There are legitimately auto shops in this town that if they can get the money out of you, they will. They will take your money and they will give you the words PG that, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> words that, you know, a, a, a shoddy job. Yeah. And they will not tell you that and they will sell you a a new part and it will be a used part. They, you know, that that stuff abounds in the auto world and it, it's 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 sad to say. Mm-hmm. Um but you have to treat people how you want to be treated. And I, I use that within my daily life with my employees, with my life experiences influencing how I treat customers when I overstep my boundaries to take care of somebody even though maybe I shouldn't. When I push myself to do things within the business for the employees when, I mean, I'll be frank, by and large, like, there's not a lot of auto shops that are willing to extend their business to to do the things for my employees that they get. It was never stuff that I got as an employee. To be fair, that was one spot. And it's never stuff that I hear from the people that graduated with me that they get. And so you feel like you feel like your um your Christian upbringing upbringing the influence of your your mother and your grandparents um has played into your decision to live that kind of a lifestyle. Is that, that uh, what I'm hearing? A hundred percent. Like you, you, you have to give not, I don't want to say you have to give to get, but you, you have to give almost first because you know, you, you're always going to run into somebody that'll take you for all your worth. But I want to demonstrate first and foremost that I'm willing to give almost more than I have in order for people to understand that that like we mean business. We're yeah. we're, we're we're not a joke. We're we're here to provide you everything that I can on the up and up. Mm-hmm. No shoddy business. No you know tricks. Sure, I've been accused of stuff, but at the end of the day, like, I can't keep everybody happy because I'm in an awkward triangle of your money, your car, and me fixing your car and taking your money. And, you know, we got to meet in the middle somewhere with how much you want to spend for the job you want to get versus what's the right thing to do. And people will always view auto shops as shady and shysty and that's fine because a lot of them are and we try to break that mold but it's a hard mold to break when there's so many that go the other way yeah tosh what about for you yeah well i guess a short background right uh grandparents are seventh-day adventist my parents are seventh-day adventist i've been i've grown up in the church um you know parents being elders and you know children's ministry stuff like i i was grew up physically at the church all the time you know, I went through grade school, I went through, you know, uh, high school, and then I went to, you know, Walla Walla, right? And, 
you know, so I, I think it plays a huge part. You know, it's part of the reason why we met, right? If mm -hmm. we weren't Adventists, like we wouldn't have never met, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, um, you know, for when we moved to California, we knew no one, you know, and, and it was, it sucked, you know, like, and it, it, it took us down to, uh, you know, trying different places and, and, you know, it's like literally sitting in the pew, intentionally sitting, you know, while people were walking by us, not, not a single person saying hi, you know, and, and we finally found a few places and, you know, that we kind of got hooked up with a few people and things started kind of getting better. And by the time we kind of moved here, um, also, I, I got hooked up playing music a lot, uh, you know, just almost burnt out, like playing music, running sound system stuff and running two different churches. Like it, it, it got overwhelming. So when I came up here, I was just done. I was ready for a break. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't very long and then COVID hit. And so we didn't really get out for a, a lot. And then everyone was just kind of reclusive for a couple of years. And now that I'd say we're out of it. You know, I don't really, I don't think anybody around here has any more restrictions or anything. It's been a bit more of a, okay, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, where, what is our, what is our plan? Like, cause we need to have a plan for this. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, faith is still there. Like there's no, there's no doubt in my mind. Like we're still, I still identify as, you know, Seventh Day Adventist. Um, I think our, the way that I personally view my life is a bit more of a, um, you know, what's, what's the number one commandment, you know? love people as I neighbor you know I don't I'm not here to tell people how they want to live or what they want to do I'm just I'm here that when they come and ask me a question I don't have I don't care who you are I'm going to give you my response not something masked by you know what you what you do you know you're going to get the same version of me mm -hmm. and that's that's all I that's all I can really do um but you know we've been we've been trying to make it trying to find the churches around here that that also work for us you know that have you know people our age where we can meet more people and and get out there and it's you know <laughs> it's tough to be consistent you know um it's just you get done with a long week and you know the first thing you want to do on a saturday morning isn't get up and go to church <laughs> so it, it's something you have to consciously tell yourself to do you know and and, and to get there but and and so for for you and your wife um has there been any any added conversation of of how you see this impacting you faith wise or any anything that's going to entwine there? Because at the beginning, the only reason I ask is at the beginning you mentioned how the two of you had talked through all of those different aspects together. I think that conversation is ongoing, okay. <laughs> all the, like all the time. You know, I don't I don't think it's something that you, you kind of have you kind of set the ground rules once or you kind of set what you, you kind of say. I, I think we've been consistent in what we've said, but I mean, as far as we've, you know, the direction and where we're going is always kind of like, well, you know, that didn't, that one didn't really peter out. Let's try this, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're kind of, kind of bounce around a little bit until you, you kind of, you kind of find the right one. I mean, that's why there's so many different churches, right? I mean, people just, once they find the one that they like, they're like, hey, this, this is it. Like, I like these people. I like the style of music or preacher or whatever it is that makes it click, you know, for mm -hmm. that. I think for for us, people matter more than a religious organization. And so that personal relationship with others is really what we're seeking. We've got four minutes left of camera time before everything dies. And I found out something died along the way. So Tosh, could you re-give, I would say, just your your cliff notes, your elevator pitch on how fitness has impacted this. And we'll give it to Trevor and wrap things up. Yeah. Uh, fitness has made my energy come back. 
um, not only the joy of doing this, right, but uh, it my energy back, my drive, my motivation. Um, you know, a lot of rando pain is gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, chronic pain from sitting over mm -hmm. a computer for very long. You know, so it's just overall made made it more positive. And you know, the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Yeah. So I think we're finally getting there. <laughs> right. And Trevor, where are you at with your fitness journey through all this? Uh, I like burritos, so fitting this burrito in my mouth is about all the fitness I get. <laughs> I play softball eight weeks, ten weeks a summer. Um, I run around the shop all day. I contort myself. We set 90 tomato cages the other Sunday. Like, I live a physical life, but fitness since college, since being a two-hour-a-day gym rat in college, has not been the same. Yeah, I miss it, but I have not made the time to fit it back in okay well wish we had more time on camera obviously the three of us could talk for a lot longer because that's what we do when we get together but thank you both for thank you both for agreeing to be on the podcast bentley you're the star i don't i don't have any treats for you there's a treat on the end of the stick oh that yeah. wasn't the trick i was looking for mullen get him <laughs> right. Oh, sorry, that's taboo. I'm ex oh, hey, look, my button's undone.